Blog Talk Radio.
Welcome to another edition of the Bachelor News Radio Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network at WCOM and Chapel Hill and IBM TV. Now you can hear the Bachelor News Radio. Thank you, Mark Lee and company, for adding us to IBM TV. I'm L.A. Bachelor. We thank you for joining us wherever you are. Uh, we appreciate you chiming in. Right now, the number to reach us for your questions, comments, concerns is 646-929-0130. Or you can hit us up online uh, and listen online at blogtalkradio.com forward slash LA hyphen bachelor. And, of course, the chat room is open there. Questions you can make at our Facebook page at Pad Nation or comments, Pad Nation to a Twitter as well. I bring in my guest, always good to have him on, longtime activist and an award-winning author whose most recent book is the novel In Motion. Um, here is Andy Piasek. And Andy, greetings from my native state, my nutmeg state of Connecticut. How are you? I'm well, L.A. Thanks for having me again. Appreciate you, sir. So I wanted to have you on because this this is one of those topics that's in your wheelhouse, um, and that is the growing, the increasing number of people who are poor in this country. Um, the the wealthier continue, the wealthy continue, the middle class, which politicians love to talk about, bringing up the middle class. It's shrinking. I don't even know what the middle – I know the numbers are horrible. $12,500 is considered poor, so what is the um, – I mean, considered uh, middle class, so what? what is poor? So I, I want you to kind of go through, if you can, some of the factors, some of the reasons why we have poor people that are scraping to get by – um, in this country? The best place to start, I think, is with the nature of the economic system itself. I think the best phrase to describe it is state capitalism, and that's mainly because capitalism, businesses, capitalists have been heavily subsidized and supported in a million different ways by the state. By the state, I mean the entire government structure at a federal level. And the United States has a particular history that in some ways is more vicious and more destructive than many other places and maybe even every single other place. The, the, the starting point for state capitalism is for capitalists to accumulate as much profit as they can. If you had a real free enterprise system, people would be killing each other all over the place. Businesses would be, you know, conducting themselves in even more violent and vicious ways than they are now. <clears throat> and I think it's very possible, like, that the whole human species would be wiped out in about 50 years. So anytime you hear anybody talking about free enterprise or pure capitalism or anything like that, it's uh, it's – no such thing has ever existed, and it would, it's to our benefit that it never will, hopefully. So the United what, States has well, a particular can history, you define, I think. Though, okay, I was going to say, I'm I mean to interrupt. Can you did, did go into a, a more uh, specific definition of uh, capitalism by the state? 
that what that really means? Well, the the starting point is the same as any other capitalist system, which is private ownership of the means of production. And the, the, the premise is for the business owner or the group of people owning the business to accumulate as much profit as they possibly can. Anything that good that comes out of that is basically by accident and really irrelevant as far as they're concerned. Their concern is whatever they may spew about bringing a product to the country that people want or a service or whatever. Yeah, there may be some truth to that, but I would say nobody and certainly not at the highest levels gets into business for that reason. They get into business to make money and the the best of them or the most successful of them have been successful in achieving accumulating massive, unbelievable amounts of wealth. Um, the government becomes involved in many ways because they intervene to subsidize and help capitalists, um, especially the biggest ones, to protect them from, you know, the whole idea of what a tariff is. A tariff is meant to keep outside competition out. So if you really had a free enterprise system, there would be no such thing as a tariff, and that would have incredible impact on homegrown businesses because, you know, everybody would be fighting and clawing to pay less than everybody else. And it'd be one company undercutting each other after another on and on in all different spheres of industry. Also, the courts and the legislature play an important role in all of this. Um, overwhelmingly, when there are questions regarding whether it's health and safety, whether it's child labor, whether it's slavery, whether it's whatever, intervening on behalf of the capitalist. Now, there are isolated situations in which um, that doesn't happen, in which some positive things come out. That usually comes about through popular pressure or through some other means whereby the demand for some kind of change has become so great that the uh, uh, the choice is really there is no choice. Something different has to be done. <clears throat> um, and I think compounding why I say earlier that there's a sort of unique characteristic to the United States is much of the foundation for business profits in this country stem all the way back to the slave trade. It allowed various business to build up massive amounts of wealth, much of which has been carried forward all the way into the modern times. And it also created poverty at a level that, I mean, a slave life is basically about the worst possible thing you can imagine in terms of living uh, for a human being. But the after effects, you know, 150 years later or whatever it is since the official end of slavery has had tremendously destructive uh, ramifications for African Americans and descents, descendants of slaves, such as we've talked about previously when I've been on your show, that the disparity between the amount of wealth held by the average African American compared to the average white person or the average African American family compared to the average white family is still incredibly large and at least I'd say for the last 30 or 40 years is actually going in the uh, getting larger. There was a period of time 
50s, 60s, 70s, maybe somewhat into the 80s, where some corrective and some recognition of the problem uh, was having an impact. But much of that has been reversed and is getting worse uh, again, almost um, at levels that we haven't seen since, you know, 100 years ago or more. Um, I mean, there's a lot of different directions we could go. Um, I think another unique kind of feature of U.S. capitalism is how violent and inflexible business in the United States compared to other similar kinds of countries that have similar systems have been in terms of resistance to progress in labor rights, in terms of progress as far as child labor and um, hostility to labor unions, hostility to legislation that would alleviate some of the worst aspects of poverty. Now, we did see that, and we have seen that, especially during what the period known as the New Deal from the 1930s that roughly, some of it still continues to this day, but much of it beginning in the 1970s has been gutted. So if you look at comparable capitalist countries, and Europe is usually a good reference point, Australia, Canada, uh, other countries, perhaps Japan, you see much less extremes of wealth and poverty in those places, virtually all of them. I'd say none of those places has a small core of people who are literally now worth $100 billion, so much so that in the last year or two, we had to create a new word, centa-billionaire, to describe some of them. And literally tens of millions of people living um, either in the worst kind of situations like homelessness or shelters or prison to people who are industriously working and going to work every day who basically have just enough money to last them from paycheck to paycheck. So that unique characteristic of uh, U.S. Right. economic situation, I think, is something that we can get into and which really makes it such an abomination because in many ways this society is the most prosperous and the richest in the world yet um right for reasons that hold, hold some that. of the reasons i've talked go ahead i'm sorry hold that thought andy i want to bring in our our other guests uh to talk about this you talk about the different variations and discussions we can have on this and at the end of the day at the end of this hour and we'll continue to do these these type of uh, roundtable discussions on on poverty and the poor um, you know the ideas may be different but if it, we can come to some kind of middle ground to 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 solve this sadly people in, in the greatest quote-unquote country in the world are poor and homeless and and, and going through I want to bring in Dr. Uh, Larry Feeder well he is the uh, co-host with main host of the resistance hour um, uh, that airs every Wednesday night, 7 p.m. Eastern, here on the Bassey News Radio uh, Network. And and Doc is a, a business owner. He's been a business owner. He's written several books. He he's written on this. He talks about the wealth gap, about uh, conscious capitalism. So Doc, I, I just want you to to take your time, if you will, to talk about. Andy talked about it. He's an activist. He's a labor uh, uh, rights uh, uh, supporter. Um, 
but he, he talked about some of the origins of why we are where we are. Talk about some of the or- origins, because I know you're, you're, in, you're vested in this as well, of how we got to this with these huge wage gaps and people in, in this country that are poor and homeless. Well, that's a big order. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, uh, I guess um, there, there, there are a couple. Of, there are a couple of approaches to that problem, which I'm sure your other guests are uh, are fully aware of. Uh, one is the economic approach, and uh, and of course, then there's the historical approach, which was just being discussed uh, 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 right a few minutes ago. Um, and I, I I agree that uh, slavery. Is a very uh, debilitating and uh, and and really terrible thing to uh, to have happened uh, in our in our society. But frankly, um, we're not the only ones that had had slaves, and there were a lot of slaves in the whole history of mankind. Uh, we at least got out of it. Uh, a lot a lot of other people did too, but um, so. You know that that is in the past. Uh, I, I, I'm much more interested in the future. Um, I don't think that I, I'm. I'm certainly not intending to move out of the United States, and, and I think a lot of other people are not going to do that. So I think we, if we're going to do something reasonable and something uh, productive, then we uh, really have to come up with some uh, some answers. Uh, and that is how do we alleviate this proper, proper, po- poverty and and uh, and particularly how do we uh, try to uh, spread the wealth more evenly and and more uh, productively uh, without, in my opinion, losing the uh, advantage of our of our, our capitalist system. Um, the the fundamental, I mean, the economic answer to your question, if you want to look at it uh, from an economic point of view, one of the key factors is inflation. The fact that, uh, you know, we have, it it, it, it does get very complicated because uh, we have, uh, the middle class was prospering very uh, nicely in the the wake of uh, World War II after, after, uh, say, about 1948, the recession of 1948. Uh, after that, uh, labor got organized, and uh, we had uh, we were the conquerors essentially of the uh, of the world at the time, and uh, so we uh, our our uh, products were being sold uh, without really any uh, competition from uh, outside the United States, and uh, a person could. Uh, join a factory and stay there for 30 or 40 years and come out with a, a very uh, live a very handsome uh, life and with a lot of what we now would consider luxuries and uh, and they were very pleased but then that that began to erode in 1971 when we went off the uh, gold standard and it continued uh, to the point where it's approximately 600, 600% uh, deflation with, uh, uh, with the uh, wages of, uh, of all of the uh, 
the, the middle class uh, being essentially uh, staying where they are in terms of borrowing power, where they were in the, night, in the early 1970s. So that, and, and of course, that's a very bad thing from an economic point of view because most of our GDP depends upon uh, uh, the, uh, bar, the buying and uh, the public uh, getting uh, its uh, uh, going out and buying things and, and making companies prosper and so on and so forth. Um, from my point of view, um, they really, you know, you, in order to get taxes, you have to get profits, because without profits, there aren't any taxes. So, who's how is how come all of the assets that that are producing all these great profits are going to a, a very small group of people? For perhaps one percent of the entire population owns getting very close to 80% of all the assets. Uh, I, to me, that, that sounds like the beginning of feudalism. And uh, there's a lot of, uh, we, we, uh, much of what I write is, is for trying to help people understand what all this stuff means. And the way I try to describe that is if you look at at uh, the at the England in the in the 19th and most of the 20th century, and you see the all of the uh, the land was all owned by by the the nobility, and everybody else worked for for them. And even though the serfs were supposedly uh, uh, free people, uh, the fact is that uh, they they depended entirely on the uh, on the gentry in order to uh, survive. So. We don't want to be in that position, and I don't. I see there's only two ways really to distribute the wealth, and one is when you have uh, uh, the government uh, gets involved in trying to take take money away from the people that earned it and uh, give it to other people who didn't uh, participate in it. Um, the problem with that is that socialism that didn't work for the uh, for the uh, Soviet Union, and it really hasn't worked uh, all that well for anybody else either. So, but capitalism itself has has be, had has had its evolution, and um, it, it has a rather a rather spotty history. It has made uh, a whole new class of owners um, wealthy and extremely wealthy, and I think. You can look at the digital revolution as, as part of that picture, uh, but um, but there so so there therefore and that's that the, the capitalism that everybody thinks about is uh, the um, triumph of greed and and everybody else trying to be uh, you know just as uh, greedy as the next person and the hell with everybody else. Um, that that is. That's that ca that form of capitalism has to be. If there is to be any other approach to trickle down, which is uh, the the best case of capitalism that we now have, uh, I think we have to have another version of capitalism. And I think uh, it, there there are some very promising uh, uh, starts in that direction. Uh, and I talk about the conscious capitalist movement. Uh, that 
that seems to be uh, 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 a way of looking at at capitalism, at the free market. Capitalism not really the best word for this, but the best words, I guess, are free market enterprises. Uh, but getting, letting people be free and try to uh, uh, associate themselves with um, with good. Uh, Doc, before you go into detail about the conscious capitalism, because I know on your show you've had uh, various uh, uh, people to come on and talk about. I know that you've reached out to some of these businesses, organizations in that regard. But I want to ask um, Andy. Um, Doc talked about socialism and the issues with that. We've seen it, as he mentioned, in uh, uh, Russia and, and uh, uh, places like Cuba and, and other uh, Venezuela, um, different places that have had it and, you know, not the greatest results in a, a lot of different scenarios. Um, but you also had the New Deal, and then you had um, uh, a president – in in um oh god and i'll just slip my mind um uh, linda johnson who was concerned about the poor and the black and brown people and 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 the broken homes and and welfare and and tried to to make some moves not just from that standpoint but of course civil rights and voter rights and things of that nature so what do you say to those who Say that you know you know socialism is not the way that the government coming in as Dr. Fido said, um, taking money from those who earned it and giving it to those who are in need who didn't participate. What do you say to that? Well, I think there's been historically different kinds of socialism. I think the State socialism governed by a self-anointed vanguard party, such as we've seen in the Soviet Union and China and other places, is not something that I would subscribe to. And I think many, many people who are interested in socialism or interested in transforming the society to something better do not look to that as a model, but rather look to it as something to be completely avoided. Um it's important also to remember that the so-called socialist experiments have all basically happened in countries that are in what we would call the underdeveloped world, whether it's China, Vietnam, Russia, Cuba, however we want to categorize a place like Venezuela. All these places have long histories of tremendous exploitation at the hands of the North. So they're starting from a basically very disadvantageous position. But second of all, and perhaps more importantly, the countries of the North have systematically waged warfare against every single one of these countries. I think one of the hidden histories of the United States relations with Russia is the tremendous belligerence of the United States, England, France, and several other countries toward Russia basically since the beginning of the workers' revolution there in 1917. Uh, just think about the fact that in 1918, while World War I was still raging across all of Europe and other parts of the world, the United States, together with those countries that I mentioned, sent an invasion force into Russia 
for the express purpose of assisting what were called the white Russians to overthrow the new uh, Bolshevik government. Um, so the Cold War by no means started in 1947 after World War II. The Cold War really started in 1917 and 1918. And there's no question that the initiating belligerents were the capitalist countries, not Russia. But as far as um, <clears throat> I think there's a social democratic approach that's common in Europe um, that does feature higher taxation on the richest. It features higher taxation on corporations. And I think that that is generally what people think about when they refer to as socialism. I don't. I have a different uh, approach that we can get into. But I will say um, what we've seen over the last 50, 75 years of history is that those countries, as I said in my first uh, answer, have avoided some of the most extreme problems that we see in the United States regarding poverty, perpetual unemployment, between a massive, unbelievable gap between the richest and the poorest, because they have in place legislative initiatives that go far beyond uh, be what we see in the United States as far as unemployment insurance benefits, maternity leave, in some countries, maternity leave applies both to the mother and to the father. Uh, minimum guaranteed paid vacation time, up to five weeks and perhaps more, like in Norway and Sweden and some other countries. Those things are unheard of in the United States. Uh, you have <clears throat> single-payer health insurance, which means basically in most of these countries, although it's different in each of them, when a, when a baby is born, they're issued a number, and when they get old enough, they're issued a card that they present for health care, whatever is needed, although sometimes it's not immediate, uh, is free, is paid for by taxation, by, high, by the higher rates of taxation that are um, taxed for the wealthiest in the corporations in the society. So I think that the the social democratic model which i which is what i how i would characterize those countries in some ways has produced better living standards than what the united states has been able to produce what i would say uh is yeah go ahead i'm sorry good uh, good I, I just want to do a um a reset if you're just joining us uh we're talking about um uh, poverty in the united states wage gaps uh, uh, problems and solutions here on the on the, the Bassey News radio show on the Bassey News radio network WCOM in Chapel Hill and IBM TV. We thank them uh, for picking up uh, the broadcast as well. Um, Andy Piasic is is on. We appreciate him coming on. Of course, he's a longtime activist. He's an award winning author. He's a, a writer of, of, of lots of articles and novel in motion. Um, he is a, uh, a labor uh, uh, union activist, a pro uh, a labor in, in terms of their rights. Um, and, of course, Dr. Larry Fidewa, who is not only an author and, and writes articles, um, he's also an educator. He's a former businessman. And, of course, 
he uh, has his own show. He's the main host of uh, the with Dr. Larry Feeder and Tom Donaldson that airs every Wednesday night here on the Bassett News Radio Network and, and Blog Talk. Um, Doc, I want you to, if you can, and, and I'm getting um, responses from people, if you both can speak up a little louder. I don't know why it's coming in low, but if you can, um, do so. But, Doc, um, I want you to respond to um, what Andy said. And, I mean, you again, you're an educator, so you some of the, the historical stuff that he um, brought up, I'm sure you're very familiar with it, but, but what say you um, – uh, uh, to that, um, in particular, the one thing that's coming in from my my folks, you can comment on this too, is um, the minimum wage. The the the, the fact that seven twenty five is the national number. I don't know anybody, anyone, doc, that can live off of seven dollars and twenty five cents. And the fact that uh, these politicians are fighting not to raise uh, the wage. Uh, is part of the problems that we're talking about. Well, that 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 gets down that gets right down into the um, into the bushes, um, and I think there are a lot of things that are wrong uh, in our society, and, and and that's pretty true of mankind in general. Um, I really I really believe that. That 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 the whole issue about uh, the difference between uh, uh, the capitalism, at least as it's uh, practiced in the United States, and 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 all and socialism as as it uh, existed in uh, certainly in the Marx and Engels kind of uh, uh, context, is uh, is fundamentally the the factor of idealism. I think that the uh, the socialist model is essentially based upon uh, the, the idea that if everybody could actually have the the same amount of everything, and that uh, they could all be happy with each other, and and it there's a certain um, there's a certain utopian uh, glaze to to that uh, to that theory, or at least that view of, of mankind, and it certainly is something worth trying to uh, come by. But it, it there, if you look at the history, of the, look at the history of the world. You know, there, there's essentially every every society, uh, 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 roughly until the 18th century, was uh, some form of uh, uh, authoritarianism. You know, they there was never. They all eventually there 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 are people in every society who want to be uh, who want to be in charge, and they want to be able to boss other people around, and they and they're willing to uh, be, uh, do whatever it takes to uh, achieve that kind of uh, superiority, and that's really the history of of, of the human race until. Until relatively modern times, and and the idea that um, that you that you can that you can create a society with, in which you have um, 
peace and and uh, uh, differing definitely differing levels of prosperity. Uh, but you can you can have people who are striving for justice, um, even if they don't always uh, achieve it. Um, that comes. Uh, I mean, the only the only theory, economic theory, the only social standard that has ever allowed uh, the uh, that has taken so many millions of people out of uh, abject poverty throughout the world is the idea that. One thing that does make sense and does make people behave is their their own their own welfare and that of their own family, and that is really the fundamental basis of the um, free market uh, approach to uh, to what human beings are, and uh, the democratic uh, structure is, uh, is is the way that we keep that that kind of uh, equilibrium in. in in practice, and if we don't have either the uh, the opportunities that come through a free market that are constrained and uh, and uh, regimented to some extent by uh, by a democratic uh, uh, system which makes the rules, uh, then then the whole thing is going to fall apart. And uh, if you look at Europe, you 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 really have to look at uh, not only uh, some of the more uh, desirable uh, benefits that, go- that governments uh, have uh, in- initiated uh, for their uh, for the people, but uh, you also have to look at the things that have gone wrong. Uh, I mean, the entire 20th century was basically uh, people uh, trying to uh, take over other people, whether it be... Uh, the Nazis or the uh, Bolsheviks or or uh, who else, whoever. So um, I, I, that's where I that's where I start, and that's really why I think uh, it's the only way I I can think about this sort of thing. Mm. Andy, your response? Oh, um, well, I, I was rather than responding, going to get into a little bit of a different kind of socialism. A socialist approach that I identify sure. with, and that millions and millions of people identify with, and I think is becoming increasingly popular. Um, it's a tradition known as anarcho-syndicalism. It's a branch of anarchism that puts uh, the emphasis on the working class eventually running the economy uh, for its own benefit, rather than having a small elite run the economy for their benefit. And I think it would look um, different in different places, and I don't really want to even get into too deeply what it would look like uh, here, because that's really for people in the future to decide. I think that we can look at um, work that is being done already, um, and I think the basic premise goes back to how do we want to organize a society that's best for everybody or at least best for the most people? And I think one where we have a totalitarian system of business elites, such as we have had historically in this country, whether it's the DuPonts, the Rockefellers, Standard Oil, Chase Manhattan Bank, U.S. Steel, General Motors, um, those folks 
you know, and now the baton has been passed somewhat to the Walmart, the Walton family of the Walmart company and um, Amazon and Jeff Bezos. But the essence of it is the same. Um, and it's the premise is that we will have good lives for ourselves and whatever else happens to everybody else, that's for you all to figure out. And if it's bad and nasty, you know, so be it. Um, so but that, that I, has to change. Yeah. But I think the point is that that's, that's sort of the, the hallmark of capitalism. That's not a new thing that just started all of a sudden. I mean, uh, my argument would be that we had a period of three, 35 years or so where the New Deal premise was a little bit more of distribution and looking out for those who were not able to look out for themselves, whether the unemployed or the elderly or whatever. Um, but the premise of the country going back to the so-called founding fathers was that the rich will decide what's best for the country and that's it. And if you don't like it, then try everything to do everything you possibly can to become rich. Which if you don't like it, a, you got to vote for the people that uh, are going to change it. Well, um, yeah, except if the corporations have absolute control over all the major parties and the major candidates, then you're kind of just um, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Uh, and I think that the thing that impacts, I mean, when L.A. mentioned Lyndon Johnson earlier and my references to the New Deal, I mean, think about what was happening in the 1960s when Lyndon Johnson was president. Cities around this country were on fire. People were burning down cities and rising up because so much of the contradictions of the country was becoming intolerable or had reached a point of intolerable. Lyndon Johnson was on record as being opposed to the Civil Rights Act as recently as 1960, when I think there was some effort to some get a, a, a like legislation like that passed. So now comes 1964, four years later, and you have a burgeoning black freedom movement. You have uh, rioting and rebellions going on in all kinds of places. I think that that's primarily what moved him from a place of being absolutely opposed to civil rights legislation to actually being the person who signed it um, is because of pressure from below, whether it's organized or unorganized, that exposes the fissures and the contradictions in the society to such a degree that the people who run the society say, look, you know, we have to make some concessions here. We can always take it back later when things have cooled down somewhat, which is basically what's exactly happened with progress that African-Americans made for a period of time from the 1960s on. Much of that has now been under attack and much of it has been reversed. It's the same thing, as I mentioned earlier, with the New Deal. Legislation was passed that um, was the direct result of workers sitting down in factories and declaring that they were not going to leave until demands were met. Um, the unemployed were getting organized. There were all kinds of organizations and movements going on that Franklin Roosevelt, as part of the more enlightened uh, figures of the ruling class, said, we have to deal with this in a way besides just with machine guns, we have to accept the fact that 
we cannot have a functioning society if we're going to have, you know, tens and tens of millions and growing numbers of people homeless and unemployed and workers making demands. Um, and lo and behold, as we get to the 1970s and 80s, there's a sh radical shift in terms of the perspective of the business elites to take back much of what was conceded, I guess is the word, uh, to workers and the population as a whole. And we've been dealing with that um, for the last 50 plus years. So, hey, Andy, think, let me ask yeah. you, let me ask you both. I mean, to cut you off because we're running out of time. Uh, yeah, sure. I, I want to get to solutions, um, but I want to ask you both this question because I, I believe you both are, again, um, uh, believing in the unions, but I know I've had conversations with you both on separate occasions of the decline of the strength of the unions, whether there have been union busters in different states like Wisconsin, North Carolina, these at-wills. And, and places like that. I know my brother, a black man, and, you know, is a, a former teamster. He said, you know, they took my money. They didn't do anything um, um, in terms of looking out for their own. We've seen these declines in the auto industry and, and other places. So I'll start with uh, you, Dr. Fido. Well, how much of uh, the union busting or the lack thereof or really real union members and not these sort of geeky guys coming in and running it and, 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 and making deals with the owners, um, how much of that plays into where a lot of these families who, I, who you said um, were, were doing, would stay 30 years at a factory? Or, uh, we had a gun uh, factory uh, in Connecticut, and that went down. How much of the demise or the decline of unions play into all of this? I think it I think it has had a, a major part and I think that the problem with unions is that by the 1960s they had won practically everything they had started to fight for in the 1930s and and instead of continuing to evolve the concept of uh, workers rights and workers uh, benefits uh, they all they they tended they got involved in politics and uh, they just decided to try to to uh, run the uh, unions from uh, from the executive office and they and they they just lost sight of their of their uh, of their mission and frankly uh, the the biggest problem that that occurred during that whole period started in that period with when when the when the World War II generation of, fa of factory workers began to retire, uh, and, the, the, and that coincides pretty much with the uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, 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 era, I guess I would call it, um, what happened was was that that uh, there was a real a real need for a a different concept of the way that uh, workers should be compensated, and and that way, in my in my humble estimation, is uh, profit some form of profit sharing, which is uh, to me uh, just as justifiable uh, as uh, as as the benefits that go for the shareholders or the management or whoever, and and had had they noticed that the 
the uh, inflation was robbing their people of their uh, buying power as, as it just kept creeping along and started to fight it, and that uh, that they could have and should have uh, been started uh, to uh, redefine the uh, the rights of workers uh, in the in the direction of uh, of the, having their share of the profits, and uh, so that's and, and I feel that they have completely uh, abandoned their original mission, and and that that is part. Of, it's not the whole story, but that is certainly part of the part of the decline of the American middle class and the rise of all these. The, I, I just can't accept the idea that we're talking about uh, the same people uh, who are now the, the multi-billionaires. Um, you know, most of them were were uh, ordinary students and people that uh, didn't have a whole lot, but they uh, came on to something with the digital revolution. That's a different story. But in terms of the of the uh, union, I feel that the leader, and I have had a lot to do with with unions over the years. Um, I think when Roosevelt was against the idea of uh, having uh, government workers being unionized because uh, they were, in fact, uh, uh, being uh, instrumental in uh, in their own uh, in, in taking over their own. Well, that's that's a whole different story. But anyway, uh, that that's 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 uh, my 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 take. So somebody else can take in, take on me. <laughs> well, I think Andy, um, Andy, yeah, same yeah. question to you, sir. Well, I think um, there's a there's a lot wrong with unions. A lot of unions are corrupt. A lot of union member, a lot of union officials are so far detached from the lives of their workers that they might as well be living in a completely different planet. They work all day in air conditioning office. If you're at the real top, they're driven around by chauffeurs. Um, you know, they come in to work uh, in a suit and tie, uh, and the people they're representing are cleaning bathrooms or emptying bedpans or doing some other kind of, you know, grueling, difficult work. Often the salary gap between what a union bureaucrat or official makes is as much as 10 times um, so I, there's a tremendous amount that's wrong with unions and it's within the power of the working class. And ultimately I think will have to happen is that we'll have to start begin building new organizations that can call them unions. You can call them whatever we want as vehicles for workers to change the society and change the relationships in their workplaces as they best see fit. It happened with the formation of the Industrial Workers of the World in 1905, and the Industrial Workers of the World went on to do some of the most fantastic labor work of the years up until the 1920s. The Congress of Industrial Organizations, you know, known as the CIO, was a break-off from the American Federation of Labor in the mid-1930s, and the CIO went on to organize people in mass production in numbers that had never been seen before in the country. Everyday workers without uh, real skills beyond what they were able to do with their machines or whatever job they had um, and came into the, being organized by the tens of millions. 
I think we should also not forget that there has been a very, very aggressive, concerted effort by corporate elites working together with government to destroy the unions beyond just the union busters that we've seen uh, in the more modern age. If you look back, and it also went down with the complicity of more conservative elements within the labor movement itself. If you look at the period of the early Cold War of the late 1940s, large numbers of radicals and people who were instrumental in building the successful unions of the 1930s were thrown out of the labor movement as being disloyal or communist or subversives or whatever. Um, and certainly some of them were communists and many of them were socialists and many of them were other things. I doubt that very any of them, maybe some, but I doubt it, were subversive in the sense that they were doing anything in alliance with uh, people in other countries. But also what we've seen more recently, and so then you, so you do have, so the, so the victors in this struggle within the labor movement were fat cats who were content to simply negotiate a contract. They wanted their lives to be more like the bosses than whatever working class roots they may have come out of. And a great deal of complacency set in not to mention tremendous racism. I mean, I know when I've been on your show before, I've talked a little bit about <clears throat> the revolutionary attempts within the auto workers union in the 1960s um, the, called the RUMS, the Revolutionary Union Movement. The most famous one was the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement. And these were mostly African-Americans, not entirely. There were uh, whites and other ethnicities involved as well. And they were going up against both the big three auto manufacturers, but also against the leadership of the UAW to try to build the kind of labor movement that I would want to see that is actually representative of the workers themselves and which takes a more um, uh, kind of approach about we need not to only negotiate about wages and benefits, but we need to negotiate about the terms of work itself and how plants and factories are structured and all that kind of stuff. But capital made a significant decision in the early 1970s, mainly because you had the economies of places like Germany and Japan bouncing back from the Second World War, and also because of the tremendous toll that was taken by the Vietnam War of draining profits away and everything else, to be much more aggressive in terms of labor relations. And that introduces the whole wave of plant closures, of much more hardball negotiating approaches that we've seen in the steel workers, the auto workers. So if you go back and you trace uh, accounting for inflation, what an auto worker was able to make in 1968, say, compared to 1978 or on up till today, yeah. it's much, much less. And that's yeah. a direct result of policy carried out by government in league with um, the biggest businesses in the world. So I know I that wanna... we're running out of town and kind of got off into different uh, directions. But the main point that I see is I think a working class movement based on fighting for better lives for people, for better uh, working conditions within work places, uh, 
can grow into a movement and ultimately a society, I think, that is run by the people, by the workers, for the benefit of the majority of the people, rather than having the totalitarian system that we now have, where a board of whatever number of people is wielding power over tens of thousands, in some cases maybe hundreds of thousands of people, and their influence extends not just to the people who work for them, but it extends basically to every sphere of society. Um, so, you know, whether... Uh, yeah, and, and, and we're, we're going to continue this. We're running out of time. I, I, I want to get your, your, your final uh, uh, thoughts to both of you. Start with you, Dr. Leon, we, I mean, Dr. Uh, Fidua. We, we've talked about socialism and communism and Marxism and, and all these isms that exist. Uh, um, uh, all across the world, um, and and talked about uh, unions and the UAWs and the uh, the F- AFL CIO, the, the the Teamsters, all all of those things. What can you and we'll have this again say about uh, say uh, one solution you can say that would help in terms of this wage gap in, in terms of which I always talk about bringing poor people up to the middle class because politicians always talk about middle class to, to upper class. What about the poor going to middle class? That's the more, most important thing. That's the, the, the topic of this thing. So what would be one of the things, in particular, uh, places of color? Because we know un- unemployment, and it's a fact, is higher in, in black and brown communities in other places, and so is the wages and everything else. So what would be one solution that you can give quickly? More jobs. Creating more jobs. I think that's the key because if people understand, most people want to, they want to work. They want to do something important, but they also want to be rewarded for it. And I think right. if they if you get more more uh, more work of, that needs to be done, and you get people motivated to learn how to do it, and then and the and the motivation is partly uh, that they own a piece of it, then uh, I, I think that's that motivation is the key, and and opportunity of course is it has to be uh, has to meet motivation. But uh, I think I think a better job, more jobs, and more better trained people. And uh, if 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 we had so many job openings that people had to go out as we did in the computer industry in the 1980s, 70s, and 80s, we went out and trained people to be able to do our jobs, to do the jobs, because we didn't have enough people coming out of schools that that knew how, knew what what we needed. And uh, so we started our own schools, and that that's 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 the uh, the the motivation and and the engine that drives our entire economy. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's a lot of people say there's 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 profit and jobs in war because if people die, there's openings or they won't come back to go back to their works. It's, as somber as it sounds, um, and then Andy, you know, uh, I've I've saw some stats that says that, you know, there's some business of people in their business community that say, listen, I I mean, you know, a college degree at this time 
in this climate is kind of overrated. If you can be trained, we'll train you, and you may not have a college degree, but we need to help to the point of Dr. Fidua and what he said. But what what would be one solution quickly that you would give? Well, I think because it has so many ripple effects in many different directions that impact a lot of different things, I would say building up the power and the strength of the working class. Uh, by that, that would include union oh. members and the vast majority, which is probably close to 90% of workers who are not in unions, because that would have an impact in the legislative arena. It would have an impact in terms of shifting the balance of power in workplaces. So just a general commitment to building up the power and strength of the working class. I agree with that. I agree with both of you. Um, big thing, especially in, in those communities that, that need it. I mean, it's it's an easy cycle. You have the money. Instead of you mowing your lawn, how about hiring a landscaper? It's going to do a service you don't have to do the work and he gets the job it puts money in his pocket or her pocket that's a two plus two equals four type of you know solution uh, but we'll continue to talk about this real quick dr uh Fidua, uh you can let people know how to follow or reach you and then andy after you well you can listen to the resistance hour at seven o'clock uh every wednesday night uh eastern time uh, and uh, that's uh, at the same at the same place on your dial, and uh, that right now is the main thing that is new. I do have a, a website that is uh, drlarryonline.com, and uh, but uh, I'm not I'm, I'm I've suspended my column now for the time being, but there's still some interesting stuff there if I if I do say so myself. Absolutely, and Andy, I know you're old well, school. Yeah, I'm kind of low-tech as far as social media, so I would just say, you know, people can Google my name or they can find articles that I write at places like counterpunch.org and Znet, the letter Z-N-E-T.org, uh, many other places too, but those are the two main ones. Andy Piasek, Dr. Larry Fido, well, thank you so much. We'll have you on again. A, a, a conversation that needs to be had um, to, to come up with some solutions. Thank you so much. Well, thank we you. appreciate we appreciate you giving us a platform for this. All, all the best to you both. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Andy Piasek, he's a longtime activist, award-winning author, whose most recent book is uh, – Novel Emotion and Dr. Larry Fidoa, um, an author and uh, educator and businessman, of course, main host of the Resistant Hour that airs on these airwaves, the Bastard News Radio Network. In fact, you can listen to all of his broadcasts, the rebroadcasts of those um, at the Bastard News Radio Network.com. Just go to the top of the page, you'll see uh, the Resistance Hour, Dr. Larry Fidoa and tom donaldson take a short break and get my guests patiently waiting on the line on the bachelor news radio network bachelor news radio show and wcom and ibm
Some regions are vast and empty, other areas we call closets. Fortunately, Kevin from the Container Store has answers. Hmm, right. Kevin, what gives you the power over space? I'd say Alpha Customizable Closets. With free design and Alpha's adjustable shelving and drawers, I can create space in any size closet. Kevin, master of space and closets. Or just Kevin. Plus, right now, save 30% on Alpha and installation and earn up to $500 in credit through February 10th. At the Container Store, where space comes from. Where is that music coming from? Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Bachelor News Radio Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. There'll be COM and Chapel Hill. Also, IBM TV and Blog Talk Radio as well. Dot com. I want to bring in my guest. Always good to have him on. It's been quite some time. Featured columnist for Inside the Nation. Um, the, the Vibes.com from Malaysia and Singapore. The Arab News uh, that covers the Middle East and North Many other outlets which we will share with you at the end of this interview. He is Jim Williams. And Jim, I appreciate you, sir. It's been a long time. I hope all is well with you and your family. Yeah, L.A. um, got my shots and, you know, we're doing okay. Everybody's working through it. I hope uh, you and the folks at the pad are uh, all healthy and and ready to rock and roll. Good that you mentioned your shot in COVID-19. Yeah, I've had mine, at least the one. Um, And, you know, when you you look at the Biden administration, I mean, Mm -hmm. just forget before him, the the, the administration, one million in 100 days vaccinated was two million, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, The way it was distributed, of course, Johnson & Johnson had their issues. Um, Moderna was there and the others. what grade would you give the administration, not only on how they handled it, how they pushed it out, um, the, the pushback they got from Republicans, and, and even more specifically when it comes to African Americans, who by nature we are not trying to take needles that, you know, I mean, with the Tuskegee right. experiment and everything else, we're very concerned. Yeah. So uh, in terms of them getting the message out, to the people to get vaccinated, both in black and brown communities and communities overall? Well, I think um, I'd have to give them a B plus. I think that they did a really good job. They got, uh, they doubled the amount of um, people that got the uh, vaccine. Um, originally it was a hundred you know, million in, um, in, uh, yeah, hundred million. million. That's days. what I meant to say. Thank and you. Now it's mm-hmm. two hundred. Now it's two hundred million in in a hundred days. And today's the hundredth day, so um, you figure that's it. I mean, look, I, I they a lot. You have to remember. I know we're not going to talk about the past administration, but you have to remember the, that they didn't get this handoff until the very last minute. I mean, there was no transition of a normal transition. So um, Biden came into this, you know, at least three, four, almost five weeks late uh, over what he could have done had there been a quote-unquote peaceful transfer of power, which there was not. You, you, 
wasn't it 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 was some lag time in, in all of that um but you think moving forward because in some cities you know some cases are going up um right. and, and some are down but the ones still the concern and those Trump supporters who feel, you know, they want to stick their chest out and say, hey, you're not going to tell me what to do. Um, right. What does he do about those moving forward? And and is he doing the right thing uh, federally and how he's messaging um, blue and red states uh, about, you know, these slow ways or these uh, sort of um, uh, strategic and cautious ways of reopening? Well, I think that, you know, they're they're trying to he's always said he's following the science, right? And he's trying to do it. He wants to get people back to work, back to school as soon as possible. Um but remember the United States government doesn't oversee what happens in your local school district or in some of these red states where, you know, there are some issues with that. Um as for people, you know, the Trump um, and other anti-vaxxers, you know, you're a sports guy. Like, I like to be a sports guy, and I will quote the, the famous Bear Bryant who said, I can't teach stupid. Um, if you're too stupid to get a vaccine, well, then there's nothing I can do for you. Mm. And it, But I think, too, uh, we – we want to make it clear that there 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 are a lot of people that fit that that are in that category, but then are those who are misinformed, those who um, right, are listening though. to yeah. right, listen to their their neighbors saying, you know, you don't want to do that, mm-hmm. and and again, they come in all all races, which is the point of right. you know black and brown communities being very cautious about uh, taking mm-hmm. it in itself. When you look at his agenda, though, go, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Comment. No, go I was ahead. just going to mention one last thing. And, and uh, statistics have shown that, um, surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, that the vast majority of um, the black community, people of color, prefer and want the one-shot Johnson and Johnson, regardless of whether or not there might be, you know, any side effects situations are, are minuscule in the grand scheme of things but um, you know in abundance of caution everybody you know did what was the right thing to do and that's the pause until they found out more but just a recent poll taken I think it was two days ago um, said that you know the vast majority of the quote unquote reluctant um, vaxxers as opposed to the anti-vaxxers were on board with a one-time, one-shot deal, which, of course, is the only one that does that, is, is Johnson & Johnson. Yeah, and, I, and that, that makes a hell of a lot of sense when it comes to us because, you know, we're going to do it. We we want to go that quick route and, and get it over right. and, and and get it done. Um, uh, so that, that makes a lot of sense. If you're just joining us, we're talking with, uh, Jim Williams here on the Bachelor News Radio show on the Bachelor News Radio Network, WCOM in North Carolina, and, of course, uh, IBM TV. Um, so, listen, he had a few things that he wanted 
to get done uh, basically before the midterms because we don't know what's going to happen. Right. That's a whole other issue. Um, right. uh, the jobs bill and certainly, um, you know, um, a policing. So when you look right. at, the, uh, you know, the brutality, when you look at the jobs bill, what is that going to look like? I mean, Mitch McConnell is going to be contrarian for the sake of it and because of his party uh, and uh, his own agenda. So what is this bill going to look like? Are we going to see an administration that, in my opinion, with his former boss, um, that acquiesced in a lot of ways and had to to kind of cow down and water down some, some some bills and policies that they really wanted to get done. Is is, is the jobs bill going to look like that? No, and I'll tell you why. Uh, two reasons. First off, the the Democrats right now could go through this part of this with reconciliation, which means they could only need one, you know fifty plus one, right, to get it through. So part of it, a large part of it, could be done through reconciliation, which, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, simply means that that's a, that is an apparatus in the government which allows you to pass bills based purely on the budgetary aspects of it, okay? So that part of it. And what does that mean? Well, that means that, like, uh, the 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 child care and the elder care and that sort of thing, the more social aspects of it um, wouldn't make it because that particular thing through, you know, would have to go through reconciliation. Um, so what I, what I think is going to happen in the next, and it's going to happen quickly in the next couple of months, you know, month or so, I should say, they're going to put a full on, let's get a shot to, um, to try to get some sort of bipartisan um, thing so they can go by 50 votes. If they can't get to that 50 vote, uh, 60 vote, I'm sorry, that 60 vote uh, bipartisan thing, then um, Manchin and Christian Sinema, um, the two Democratic uh, senators who seem to be most, um, you know, adverse to doing anything that doesn't include the Republicans. Uh, clearly, they haven't been around for the last four years because the Republicans did nothing with the Democrats. So, what the well, Manchin, well, he just changed. Well, he just changed his letter, Jim. He's a Republican. I don't know. Hey, he's like he, he, he's like uh, Joe Lieberman. It's the same thing. And he's showing it. Well, he's, he's showing not, it now when you have a Democrat in office. Right. But Joe Joe Biden is a creature of the Senate. Okay. Nobody knows the Senate better than Joe Biden. If Joe Biden doesn't have the votes that he needs, then he will pull Cinema and Manchin in, and there will be a reckoning. And here's the thing. They need to get points on the board before the end of this year. The jobs right. bill is the points on the board. You get those points on the board, Joe Manchin, Kristen Cinema, anybody running in the House or in the Senate – if you're a Democrat and we can say, you know, the, we the Democrats can say that we put, you know, we got a stimulus package through, no help from the Republicans. We got a jobs bill through, no help from the Republicans. So who are you going to vote for in 2022? You vote for us, we put points on the board, or you vote for these people who literally have nothing more to say about anything but reading 
you know, Dr. Seuss and also, you know, talking about Mr. Potato Head. Uh, I mean, literally, they've got nothing. So, Jim, let me ask you this. The flip side of, you know, the Democrats saying, you know, we got this done without any support from Republicans. And then they say, Mm -hmm. well, they didn't really work with us. The only way they know how to do business is through reconciliation. And then I go back to something you how do the it's all about the optics and the promotion and the marketing of it so how do the democrats be ready to counterattack that type of uh narrative well you talk, you, you counterattack it by saying look you know look at the economy will be good if that happens right everything's trending up how do you fight something when it's success you fight, you're, you're saying, well, they didn't work with us. Well, you know what? It works both ways, right? I mean, getting 10 Republicans on anything at this point in time, I can't see it. I mean, I, I just don't see it. There's no way. I mean, Mitch McConnell, who famously said when he was a majority leader and President Obama had just been elected, on the same week that he was elected – Mitch McConnell gave a speech saying his goal was to make Barack Obama a one-term president. So, you know, I don't see where he's going to cut. The difference between President Obama and President Biden is that Joe Biden will fight dirty if need be. And I know it's hard to, you know, you look at Joe Biden and you say, hey, he's a good guy. All that Joe Biden will cut people off at the knees if he needs to. So if Manchin and Cinema are, you know, giving them grief, they will be brought to the White House and they will be told, here, Joe, you moron, we're going to put bridges in West Virginia. We're going to put, you know, hell, <laughs> Senator Byrd, who so for so many years was, you know, the, the Democrat in, in uh, you know, in West Virginia played this like a fiddle. He got the everything that went. The joke used to be that that Senator Byrd basically had the entire state of uh, of West Virginia paved with all the money that that they used for you know roads and bridges and all that other stuff. So look, it, it's right now the optics are keep your head down, keep moving, move forward, get the you know get things done, pass legislation. And if they if that means blowing up the filibuster, and so that it's only fifty plus one, then so be it. Because here's something for for you and the pad people to think about. Okay, since two thousand, okay, since the year two thousand, which was the first year of the Bush administration, through Donald Trump, there has not been a single single, mind you, a single major piece of legislation passed that didn't go through in some way, shape, or form a reconciliation, which included the 2010 Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, and the 2017 Act, which was the tax act that um, that President um, Trump got through in, um, you know, in, uh, in 2017. So that, mm. think about that. 21 years, we have not seen both sides come together to do anything that was 
monumental. Yeah, and you know, if if the Biden administration is smart and and Chuck Schumer and and everybody as it relates to the Senate, you know, I would run ads in West Virginia if 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 Manchin's mm-hmm. not going to be on board, not not to to be too too much in attack mode, but just to you know maybe a pack that will put it to, you know tell Joe Manchin to vote yes on this bill, you know that kind of thing, and put pressure on on them there. The the DSCC has a, in marketing themselves if they're going to use reconciliation, even though we know you and I know that right. it's been used a lot, but the the common person. And so, again, it's about the optics. It's about, you know, getting it through and saying, listen, the other side didn't want to do it, and here's why. Uh, speaking of which, well, you know, Biden let's, made let's it. Just, let's, real quick, let's just finish up on one thing on the reconciliation for the Republicans. All of, for the first time in history, okay, for the first time in history, when Trump was president and, and, um, and McConnell was in charge, they broke up the filibuster for the ability to to you know like you can target filibuster. They targeted the filibuster, which ended up allowing them to get all three of the uh, Supreme Court ju- justices approved without sixty votes. And, and just for people that don't understand the filibuster. Is is a method that you need 60 votes to to um, to get some things passed, but uh, they play dirty, and, and that's my point. Um, well, and I hope Democrats you're correct, play dirty. Too, Jim. And I know I hope you're correct about Joe Biden in terms of cutting people mm-hmm. at the knees and playing dirty because that's the, the Republican way. They play chess, and Democrats play checkers in a lot of a lot of ways, mm-hmm. and it and so they need to to roll up their sleeves and get it done. Uh, if you're just joining us to talk with Jim Williams, of course, he is a, he's got a, a, a multitude of uh, uh, places that he, uh, you know, broadcasts and, and writes. He's a columnist for The Nation, a new international news service, the, thevibes.com from Malaysia and Singapore. Also, the Arab News, arabnews.com, covers the Middle East, North Africa, Washington Bureau Chief. He's the president and founder of LJC Media. Um, so he's all over the place. Jim, yeah. uh, back Just to... Just trying to make it uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it, Back to um, the, the promises of this administration. And we go okay. to criminal, I don't even like to call it justice, so I'm just going to say criminal reform, um, right. uh, reforming police and policing, mm-hmm. especially in black and brown communities. We see the George yeah. Floyd bill trying to go through. Um, it, damaging will it be, especially going into the midterms, because we know how midterms go for you know, new presidents. Mm-hmm. They typically lose seats in the midterm. But how damaging will it be if he doesn't follow through with a lot of the promises that he's made in the black community, better law enforcement, um, certainly equal rights. We see the uh, the new attorney general opening up uh, cases in Louisville and mm-hmm. Ferguson and all these other places. Um, but getting it done, Minneapolis, of course, um, getting it done in that way, um, 
creating jobs specifically for small black businesses. How damaging will it be if in these two years, like you said, getting these bills in, um, will it be for him and his presidency and the party if he does promises to that base um, that, you know, supported him from South Carolina uh, on? Well, I mean, look, anytime you don't get something passed that is, A, important, and B, specifically important to a segment of your of your electorate, it's you know it's it's a, it's seen in some regards as a failure. It's seen as in some regards as you know they didn't come through for me. Well, at the end of the day, this all goes back to there's no way you know there's Tim Scott's really toothless plan uh, that he has, oh, um, wow. and which is what a, a waste of waste of of time. Um, so I, I think there's two ways that we could see it happen. One would be again a a bill that would go through basically on democratic um, voting and uh, and the other side is um, the other possibility is by doing something using uh, an executive order but you know executive orders which have been used against bush and then and then uh, Obama and then um, President Trump used executive orders more than they got anything passed. So that simply means that when one president leaves, the other president, just as Joe Biden has done, has pretty much undone anything that, you know, that President Trump did because it was all executive orders. If you are able to pass a law, and this is where we see this, you know, and it's a very important thing to remember. When the ACA passed in, 10, in 2010, right, Everybody went nuts on the Republican side saying, we're going to dismail it, we're going to get rid of it, we're going to you know, go, you know, it's going to be gone. It's still here, okay, because it's a law. And laws are different than presidential, um, you know, the presidential uh, um, edicts that go out, as I was saying before. And so that's not a lot. That's what I can do as a president. I can say we need to do this. And, you know, they'll do it for a while, but it's not a law. If you can get the jobs bill passed, if you can get anything in the way of, of um, work regarding um, like the, uh, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which I think is very important, any of that stuff, if you can get it through – I don't care how you get it through. Get it through reconciliation. You know, get it any way you can get it through legislatively. So it is a law. Then it becomes very difficult to change it. Yeah, I I, I totally agree with you, and I think that um, this, those are really the concerns of laws and acts, civil rights, mm-hmm. uh, right. voting rights. Um, that those things can go away under the wrong leadership, if you will, uh, especially right. um, a, a body. Uh, judges, we don't know what's yeah. going to happen with the older judges on uh, on the Supreme Court. There's been questions about having an uh, even amount of judges at that level. But, again, the sense of urgency, like the Trump administration used, um, and I th- thought Barack used, but I thought he didn't choose the right people, but that's another story of another day. But right. what about that in terms of 
um, his constituents about getting lower court people, more uh, uh, more progressive DOJ people, and all of those things. Um, because if you're gonna have to, if you're gonna fight against police, you know, brutality and and right. and things of that nature, and trying to pass a George Floyd uh, bill. You're going to need to have those type of people on your side. How important it is for him uh, to, to bring in these, these the district lower court uh, judges uh, on his team and maybe, you know, heaven forbid, have a shot at, you know, bringing in uh, one of his Supreme Court nominees. Right. Um, well, real quick, you have to go back. It's a, it's a numbers game, right? Right. Um, what happened during the four years of Donald Trump, and it kind of was under the radar, but Mitch McConnell got 300, 300 lower court judges approved, okay? You know, if Joe Biden is lucky, they'll be able to get 100, 150, because, again, it's not like these, you know, things, um, these openings come up all the time. They don't. And so the ability to put 300 people in there, you know, just limits the pool of what you're going to have in the way of scope. It's just, as I say, it's a simple numbers game. There's not enough numbers to make that work. Uh, There's been a lot of ideas floated around whether they could, you know, stop the Supreme Court or any of that. These are all very difficult procedural situations, which are not as easily filled as it sounds like, you know, for me to say, oh, well, let's just add two more judges, right? It it just doesn't work that way. It takes time and it takes effort. And so you're saying, okay, where do I have, if you have a finite period of time, as, as the president does, to get something on his agenda through, how many of these two or three or four things can I get through before, you know, before the midterms? Now, if they get lucky after the midterms and things go their way, well, then, you know, it's smooth sailing. But if it doesn't, well, then, you know, they will get no points on the board because there will be, you know, the continued gridlock that we've seen, you know, for the past 20-plus years. Uh, And uh, final two questions for you, Jim. One is about the – hold on. um, You know, feedback here. One one is uh, the House I mentioned. You know the 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 election that passed. You know the so-called experts were saying that the Democrats were going to pick up all these seats, twenty seats or something like that, and it went the opposite. Now you're looking at a a slim majority there. What do you see happening in in Two years in, in, in terms of the, if they keep the house or they lose it or they keep it by even more slimmer, if you will, uh, majority. Right. And and then when you look at the uh, Biden administration in terms of uh, foreign affairs, um, you know, what needs to be done to ensure um, that we stay in the um uh the the climate accord i mean the um uh paris accord and and mm-hmm. and this notion of you know taking all the i think it might be 2500 troops out of afghanistan right um let me start with the last first if you don't mind 
um, on foreign policy, the um, they've got a good foreign policy team. Um, they're they are working at a bit of a disadvantage because there's a brain drain over at the the State Department because Pompeo didn't fill half the positions that were there. So they're playing catch up. But there's three things they need to to do. The Paris uh, Climate Accord, they're in, which is great. They're back. Um, They need to work on the TPP, which is um, basically – for those who don't know it, that is in the Malaysia and uh, it's Southeast Southeast Asia, and basically that's South Korea and, and uh, China and all that. China needs to be checked constantly, and the TPP is the only way that happens. Um, in some way, shape, or form, they're going to have to get back to the Iran nuclear deal. It may have to be a totally different, you know. Um, set up from the standpoint of negotiations, but they're going to have to get back into that. Um, one of the good things, and it's a good thing, is that the um, our our international um, you know group that was alienated by the former president um, are welcoming us back. But you know the the bottom line is you know can we depend on the United States beyond four years, right? And that's where the concern lies. So that's that part. Now, the 2022 midterms, again, um, the map was odd. It didn't favor the Democrats. I don't see why people thought they were pick up seats there. Um, where they might, where the Democrats could be very, very beneficial is I think they'll keep the seats that they have. They think they'll keep the majority. It may still be a slim one, but I do believe they'll be able to expand in the Senate uh, because there's a lot of senators that are up that are very weak, and in some cases they've actually dropped out. Um, you know, they're retired. So I do think that they have a chance to extend the Senate, not by a lot, maybe two, three more, but two, three more is, you know, is better than 50, right? Um, so I think that that – but it all boils down to, like I said, you've got to put points on the board. If you don't have points on the board, there's nothing you, – you, you have no argument. Uh, I did get two questions in, so I'm going to double them up for you. Last uh, questions, I know I said that. Mm-hmm. Um, one person asked, how far do you think that Tim Scott can rise in the Republican Party? Uh, is he a star? Uh, I, I, I don't care for him. I think uh, the the you know the roosters will come home um, to roost and, and at some point he may be a senator but he won't go any far he shouldn't have any presidential um, aspirations not with the black community of not voting for the, for the most part um, and then the second question which I actually lost on my screen well you can address that question there yeah Tim Scott look. I, I he seems to be passionate about what he thinks he knows, right? So I'm not going to question his passion. I would question that he's the only black senator who is a Republican. Okay, you do the math. the the oper- The chances of Tim Scott being a president or even a vice president in a Republican Party 
of the Donald Trump era is, I'll tell you what, you and I have a better chance. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. I, lo- uh, I lost the um, question. Yeah. yeah, but, uh, hey, and, one, you know, America, America's mm-hmm. not, uh, but Jim, America's not racist, he said. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, in this climate, as a black man, and you say America's not racist, in this climate, yeah. as a black man, uh, again, you'll be a senator, and you might lose your, mm-hmm. your seat there, but you're certainly right. not going um, further than that. You were going to say. No, I was just going to say one thing. Uh, very fascinating interview that you did prior on on um, you know on, on what was going on in, in the country. I strongly recommend, um, and you can do this on YouTube. You'll find it. It's a 1962 debate between James Baldwin, the famous black author, and William F. Buckley, who was the chief conservative, you know, chief um, of the conservative movement at the time. And they had the debate in, in, um, oh, shoot, Uh, it was in England. It was either Oxford or or Cambridge, Cambridge, actually. Uh, Look it up. And look at it because what we we do have socialism in the country, it's democratic socialism. It's a reason we have um, it's a reason we have social security. It's a reason we have Medicare and Medicaid. So when people say, well, you know, that, that there isn't socialism in the country, there is. It's democratic socialism, which is the difference between, you know, the socialism that we we know from from European countries. Versus what we call and what has been called democratic socialism, and it was the reason that um, LBJ took on what at the time was the you know war on poverty. Many people may or may not remember that, but if you Google it, you'll find out about it. And it certainly helped uh, Johnson get uh, a very strong understanding of why there needed to be the Voter Rights Act, as well as the Civil Rights Act. All of that came down for Johnson because of, at that time, what was then a movement, which is, was the you know democratic socialism. And so, so you can find out all about it by simply watching that YouTube uh, video. It's a fascinating piece. Check it out. It's easy. It's free. Yeah, James Baldwin, one of my favorite people. Real quick, I did find it. What do you think is going to happen? They... Uh... The emailer said, what do you think is going to happen quickly in the uh, the voting debate in Atlanta? I know Stacey Abrams is at the forefront fighting to make the uh, amendments and changes of what that governor uh, 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 happened. Kim, but what do you think is Kim. going to happen? I think that they'll be in court for years. Hmm. Which means I don't think that they can exercise – you can't exercise something – that is is not settled law, and it's not settled law. You're right. So, Absolutely you know, for right. at least for a short period of time, that it'll be, you know, it'll be litigated, and and probably something like that could be litigated for years, and may even end up in Supreme Court. Which I think it will probably, and uh, Jim Wales, my friend. Too long yep. you've been on. Let's make this a regular again. I appreciate you. You be well. Okay. 
Uh, cheers to you and your family. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for the folks in the patent as well. Absolutely. Jim Williams, uh, featured columnist, uh, and, uh, of course, you can catch all of his work all over the place. Inside the Nation, uh, the Arab News, uh, the Middle, ne- uh, Middle East uh, News, of course, uh, and he is the president and founder of LJC Media Consulting. This is Bastion News Radio, show on the Bastion News Radio Network, WCOM and IBM TV.
Welcome back to the Bachelor News Radio Show. On the Bachelor News Radio Network and WCOM. WCOM and Chapel Hill. Sally Bachelor, we thank you for joining us. Always good to be here in the studio, and we we certainly appreciate you joining us wherever you are. 919-246-9639 is the number to get in touch with us. Wherever you are, we appreciate you uh, joining us uh, this day. I'm going to go to my guest. She is a teacher at Carrington Middle School. First appearance on the Bachelor News Radio Show, on the Bachelor News Radio Network, and WCOM, of course. Thank you for uh, joining us here. Very... Good to have her on. Her name is Alicia Jones, and uh, Miss Jones, we appreciate you coming on this, uh, this today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I wanted to have you on because, um, you know, uh, with COVID, uh, everything has changed, right? So, um, and it's been a a challenge for the kids, but certainly it has to be a challenge for the teachers. Uh, talk about those challenges. I have kids. Uh, as you know, that are on Zoom every day, and you know the social part of it is is missing for a lot of kids, and uh, and they feel some some feel dysfunctional because of it. But what has been the challenges for you as a teacher to teach different grades and teach um, uh, you know remotely before your kids came back into class? Well, first, I would like to start off by saying that we would not be able to educate our young people during this pandemic without our parents, our grandparents, our aunts, everyone that has stepped in and taken on a leadership teacher slash role. People are learning techniques that they've never known before. Um, And so that in itself has been an eye opener. But to lose students that you know will flourish um, throughout a day, just having that personal contact um, is heartbreaking. Um, Just to see kids um, just not there, just lost in the Zoom world. But since we have started reopening our schools back in Durham, we have seen an increase in participation. So that has been a good component of it. But we did lose kids in the midst of it with dealing with technology issues, just the social, um, lack of socialism that they were going through, not being able to be with their peers, just not having that human contact has been detrimental, not just to the students, but to us as faculty and staff as well. So you you teach music, correct? Correct. So it... It's it's got to be a different challenge. I know my son played the clarinet and some other things, and they took um, the electives away uh, for the moment because of I, I don't know the, the fact that they couldn't do it via 
you know, remotely. Um, so, you know, it shows up on his, uh, on his, um, you know, progress report and, and, and quarter reports, but it's nothing there. So what are the specific challenges that you had to go through as a music teacher? And I love music teachers, that, you know, in that regard. It's different from math and English and things of that nature. What's the challenges you had to go through? Uh, I think technology was one of the bigger challenges. Um, within the school district, um, I do not have a nice studio with um, speaking and singing mics like you do here at WCOMFM.org. But we have adjusted very well, and we have the support of our district um, admin, and our principals have been very supported and understood that the student is a well-rounded student with the arts. Um, it is a component in their growth, in their education. So when you, you, you look at that, how, was it, how did you grade quarterly um, before they started coming into class? How did, how did that work? Was it a fair, I mean, if they're, if they're on Zoom, then how do you actually do that? I, and I asked the same question to my kids' teachers in terms of, you know, is there, uh, everybody seems like it's going to pass because you're in this different environment because of COVID. Well, we definitely want to have grace and mercy with our students um, because it's not their fault, and we don't want any kid to feel like they're being penalized. Um, but we have different programs. Um, our Canvas program has a studio recording um, device that kids can send their recordings in of their song samples or whatever song selection that they're doing, and you can still grade as if they were actually singing in front of you. So with recitals, again, my son, both my sons played instruments before, so they had to go to recitals and as an individual or as a group right. of both and have to have these, these challenges. Um, so um, with, with that being said, um, how did you work out, is, were there any kind of competitions in terms of recitals at all, or is it just sort of introducing, you know, studying, understanding the music? Um, we actually uh, continued on with our district um, all-county choir. Um, our lead in our district, who is Jeremy Tucker, has done an excellent job with making sure that we have the proper programs so we can record our students and merge those recordings in that if it was an actual concert. So we've put on a virtual all-county chorus. Um, we're looking to put on some spring concerts as well. So it, um, we slowed down a little bit, but we didn't skip a beat. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're talking with Alicia Jones. She's a, uh, a music teacher at uh, Carrington Middle School in Durham uh, here on the Bachelor News Radio Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And, of course, our, our folks here at WCOM in Chapel Hill and Carborough. Um, so how, you know, I think music... I love music. So music is always going to soothe the soul, right? You're a music teacher. Definitely. You understand it. So how important was it for you to continue doing what you do for the morale of the kids and even the, the, the teachers, like in terms of just making sure that what you do as a music teacher and putting forth this, even in a Zoom or remote uh, method, uh, was important for the morale of the kids? We have students that before pre-COVID, before COVID, 
um, thread, they were stronger within our arts program, whereas they may not have been able to sit still in a language arts or, or a math class or a social studies class, but they were able to get on stage and perform and shine. And so we took that to the advantage of giving kids still that opportunity um, to shine within our arts program and didn't be in a park, feeling like they still had their family within the school. So uh, the, the final question for you now, I know uh, kids have been coming back. I know you had your sixth graders and all the kids have been coming back. Um, what is this going to look like, you know, uh, with COVID still in the midst? I mean, it, it's, it's certainly going to be different, but what, what is it going to look like? And, and, and feel free to give some, some shout-outs if you want to, uh, to the school. Well, first of all, Carrington Middle School with um, the none other than Holly Emanuel, principal and the assistant principal staff there, and um, Terry Applewhite is our elective uh, dean of students and assistant principal. Um, it, it, we don't know what it's going to look like. All we know is what we're doing right now. We're going to make sure that the kids are social distanced. We're going to still give them that opportunity to educate them and push them in high order thinking. We're going to still give them the arts where they can be creative and express themselves. Um, we're going to still allow them to socialize to the best of our ability, hand washing, following all CDC rules that we possibly can. That's all that we can do at this moment. Has that been real tough for you guys? It did when you go in and, you know, all the the good intentions are there, but, you know, stuff happens. Some kid sneezes or something happens, and then you start adjusting things on the fly. Has it been really tough with the kids coming back? Actually, the kids have been very helpful. Um, they're maintaining their distance. They're wearing their masks. They understand the importance of just doing what their, their part so they can get back to what we consider to be normal within our school system. Well, I, I applaud you. I, I, Thank you. I, 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 just, I mean, it's, listen, <laughs> COVID, my new name is Daddy. It's not L.A. or anything. It's Daddy because it, it, it's been a challenge for me being home. So I have a renewed respect. I already have respect, but I have a renewed respect for teachers and what you guys uh, uh, do with our, our kids, and I appreciate it. Uh, Shout-outs if you want. Well, I just want to say thank you to all our parents out there. Thank you to the mothers and fathers that are juggling teaching and working at the same time. You are our heroes. Um, my daughter, Atlanta, I want to say hello. Um, she just got her acceptance into Elon for uh, um, Elon University for law school, and she is a product of Durham Public Schools education. Um, so it does work. It does work. Well, big ups to her and, and Elon, the Phoenix. She's a Phoenix now. Definitely, so. definitely. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, mm-hmm. And uh, I'm big. I'm a, a big fan of Elon. A, a very good school uh, in in Burlington. But uh, uh, more importantly, I, I I truly appreciate what you do. Um, it's it's not easy what you do, and and trust you being a parent and a teacher. I'm just a parent. You're a parent and a teacher. So. You know, you got that double whammy thing going on, and I, I appreciate you, and I'm sure the folks at uh, Carrington uh, appreciate you as well. Thanks for coming on this evening. Uh, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Alicia Jones, she is a uh, music teacher at uh, Carrington.
middle school in Durham. It works. It's been working. And um, we certainly appreciate her and her efforts. This is the Bachelor News Radio Show. Stay tuned.
TheBachelorNewsRadioNetwork.com, The Bachelor with a T, BachelorNewsRadioNetwork.com. If you like us, like us at uh, Pad Nation on Facebook, Pad Nation to a Twitter, and there's a comment section on our page at the top of the website, The Bachelor News Radio Show. You can make a, a comment there, a question. If you have uh, guest uh, requests or um, even if you want your own show and want to advertise with us, uh, do hit us up uh, there. Uh, and also, of course, hit us up at labachelor40 at gmail.com uh, as well. A programming note, too, if you go to our website now in the middle of the page, you'll see a player. When you click on that, you can also listen to uh, what we call Whisper Softly that uh, takes place every Sunday to Saturday uh, on uh, the Bachelor News Radio Network dot com. Are you for me? 
Baby, come walk with me Cause you've been away too long I can live selfishly And I know I was wrong Oh, I embrace it completely My life has new meaning Baby, I cherish you And I promise to love Now it's crazy to me I've been running all this time You waited patiently On a love You would not find Darling, I need you so deeply And your love has set me free Yeah Baby, I treasure you And I promise to
Welcome back to the show. Special shout-outs to uh, and Durham uh, checking in. We uh, especially appreciate uh, you and your efforts and your support. Uh, Michael and uh, Detroit and Eric uh, and Raleigh, we appreciate all of you. If you enjoy the show, please spread the word. If you're interested in having your own show or you're looking to advertise, please do uh, spread the word. We certainly appreciate all of your efforts to make this show uh, number one, the Bachelor News Radio Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network, WCOM in Chapel Hill and IBM TV. Quit playing the 
written all over your face. Take six. Yo, Larry, man, you think you can sing this song today? <clears throat> we got a horse today, man. Yeah. Buddy? Buddy? No, man, Melvin? Too hot for me, man. Well, look. Hey, here, dude. Come on, man. Come on. Hold on. Kick the shut down, shut down, shut
taking me way up there Thank you. 
I'm here to ride 